the legacy of John Williams. Celebrating the music and the art of Maestro John Williams. Welcome, this is Maurizio Caschetto of The Legacy of John Williams. Today we are here to continue our journey through the future-proofing of John Williams' musical legacy with a new episode dedicated to the latest soundtrack release of the Maestro's incredible film output. So I'm very, very happy to have here once again as a guest of The Legacy of John Williams podcast soundtrack producer Mike Matesino. Welcome back, Mike. Long time no see. <laughs> Hi, Maurizio. And joining me as a co-host of the episode is once again, head contributor of the legacy of John Williams, Tim Burden. Hello, Tim. Maurizio and Mike, yeah, great. Always a pleasure. So we are here back together after the very recent episode dedicated to Always and Images to talk about the latest expanded edition featuring a classic John Williams score. Uh, this time is a score from the mid-1970s, one that was long awaited by the fans and admirers of the Maestro in this expanded format. So we are talking about The Iger Sanction, the 1975 thriller directed by and starring Clint Eastwood. And it's probably one of the last from that era that was missing in terms of expansion. The original album has been very long out of print and became a hard-to-find item on the collector's market. Now this has been finally rectified by Intrada Records with this magnificent new two-disc edition featuring the premiere release of the original film recordings on disc one plus a remastered version of the MCA soundtrack album re-recording on disc two. Before diving into the conversation, and we surely have a lot to talk about today, I'd like to present you a musical selection like we did the last time and it's actually one of my own personal favorite from this new edition. We'll hear now the main title from the Iger section in its film incarnation. Fans of the original album will probably notice all the various differences between the version as heard in the movie that we'll hear in a moment, and instead the version that was re-recorded for the original album. And this will be one of the topics of our conversation today. So without further ado, let's hear the main title from The Iger Sanction by John Williams.
I think this is a stunning piece of music, and it features really a, one of the loveliest John Williams themes, and probably one of the lesser-known themes of that era. So, Mike, let's talk about how this project came about and how it came to fruition. Well, I think it was something on Entrada's list with Universal for quite a while, and then it just needed to go through the normal process of putting in the request, waiting for the right moment for it to come onto John's desk and for him to give it his blessing. And then we were off and running. And so I think we waited quite a while. I know it had been talked about for, I will say two years before we finally got going on it. But of course there's always other things happening and we never want to overload too many requests or have too many things going at the same time, uh, just this way everything can uh, have its own opportunity to have focus and be presented properly and get across the finish line. But I think that I will, it probably goes back as far in conversation as always did. It's been, it's been a couple of years that we knew that this was coming and just waiting for, for it to just sort of uh, get to the front of the line. opinion this score is a very interesting element in John Williams filmography for a series of reasons uh, in chronological terms it's the score that he wrote immediately before Jaws so it could be seen as the last before the world really changed for, for John if we look at the films he was working on in that era uh, he was writing many excellent and diverse scores showing uh, an uncommon versatility and a penchant for mature dramatic writing, as previously heard in his disaster scores, but also retaining that modern jazz sensibility that was very in vogue in the 1970s uh, 
that we can hear in works like Cinderella Liberty, for example. Uh, so in this regard, the Eiger Sanction features both a serious dramatic writing and even a few big orchestral moments that would become staples of John's style uh, a few years later. But at the same time, there is a lot of beautiful jazz-infused writing. So, Mike, do you think that maybe Clint Eastwood might have had an influence in how John approached the score, in the sense that maybe he might have asked for a more pronounced jazz uh, style to the music? I mean, we know that Clint is a great jazz connoisseur, so he might have had uh, an influence on it. What do you think? Well, I think one of the first questions to ask is why John did it, because it's the only time he worked with Clint, and you would really expect maybe that it would be Lala Schifrin doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I think if I'm correct, that Lala was at the, around the same time doing another movie that involved climbing up a mountain. I think it was Skyriders. Yeah. Which I might have even worked on. Am I correct about that? But yeah, uh, yeah. So either maybe he wasn't available or it was going to be a case where it was just too similar type of musical need. But mm. uh, there's also the fact, which I believe we uncovered, that John actually, according to Variety, was signed to four movies for Universal at that time, where he was pretty much sort of halftime based already um, there and with the office still at Fox, but doing quite a lot at Universal at the time. And this movie actually started with Zanuck and Brown and their credit is still on it. And then it was sort of, I think they passed it to Jennings Lang for whom John had done Earthquake. And then Malpaso came into it. So in fact, the movie carries all three. So it's the only time he worked with Clint. So it's, I don't really know that we found out if it was just an assignment or if it's something that Clint wanted. I have a feeling that because it had an adventurous aspect to it um, and a suspenseful aspect to it, that Clint probably had seen the disaster scores and really sensed that this would be the right composer to tackle at least that aspect of it. But as we know, John is quite gifted with coming up with jazz-based themes and in using the jazz idiom Mm-hmm. where it needed and where it works. So it clearly was the, the right fit for this uh, kind of story.
The excellent liner notes by John Burlingame reveal how John wrote a score to a longer cut of the movie. And in fact, this beautiful new edition presents a lot of music that has never been heard before, nor on disc or in the movie. And it's a wonderful opportunity to see how the music plays out in the film chronologically and how John develops his musical idea. And in this regard, I think it's very interesting to note how the score uh, is very much reliant uh, on a single musical idea, uh, on a single theme. I mean, we hear it in many different guises, arranged in several different styles, and also he explores several different characters of the same musical idea. It's a very flexible theme, but every version has a sense of almost nostalgia, I could say. I mean, if we listen to the version heard in the opening titles, the one that we opened the episode with, uh, it almost sounds like a European mystery thriller type of score. Not unlike some of the works of the European composers of the same era, like Michel Legrand or or Ennio Morricone. But soon the theme is treated in many different ways. We hear it in jazz. Uh, type of treatment or in the end credits it's a more like bossa nova brazilian uh, it's very very flexible so mike do you think in this case john maybe thought uh, something along the lines let's see how many versions of the same theme i can do in a single movie i think that's a very sound theory but the genius to me was that coming up with a theme that lent itself to a variety of arrangements particularly with uh giving it a sort of ethnic application where that was needed. So uh, yeah, so it immediately gives you that sense of place, uh, doing something that would be sort of quintessentially American would um, not work for that scene. You need to sort of establish the locale. And of course, we're going to stay in Switzerland. And um, we one of the source music pieces we found was not used in the film, where he actually sort of gave the theme a kind of an alpine sort of um, yes. move for use at, at, at the hotel that's at the base of the Eiger.
yeah, it's a very versatile theme, even though, and I, and I think really the fact that it's um, in, a, in a minor key, it has a longing quality to it. There's something about um, this sort of older adventurer character that Clint plays, um, sort of looking back at the past. It's got that longing, reflective aspect about it. Um, and in the, but, but interestingly, melodically, it's not all that different from the Schindler's List theme that he would do 20 years later. It, basically, you know, in terms of the melodic structure, there's a, there's a kinship there, I think, um, or in other things that he did, such as Presumed Innocent, that sort of minor mood, um, longing quality to a melody that also lends itself to a variety of arrangements. It's really a terrific, ingenious theme. And like many people, I presume, I was mostly familiar with just the very short 35 or 38 minute album, mm -hmm. that in, which was entirely re-recording. But that's hardly representative of what the score really is. And even the movie itself is deceptive so that when I in fact had all the scoring material, it was a surprise to find out just how long the score was, how much of it was not used, either dropped or dialed out, or whole entire sequences that were cut from the film. Because as you said, it was scored to a longer version. And John Burlingame, in his research for the notes, got the screenplay and we were able to actually identify where things where we go and have a whole entire sequence, the Felicity sequence uh, early on in the, in the movie um, that was completely cut. And uh, we had some uh, score that went with that. So we kind of knew where things went and we estimate that it was two and a half hours at the time it was scored and then cut down by 20 minutes. I, I think it's, uh, I definitely agree there's a European uh, sound to it and uh, certainly the harpsichord I think lends itself well to that um, you know to the fabric of the score think about the actual film I mean the film in some ways it hasn't aged well I mean the, uh, sadly I mean the women in the film are like objects as opposed to people and that's like oh you know but I suppose a, a, a lot of uh, films from that era would, would have that kind of guilt but um, I, I think there's some great elements to the film um, you know the some of the the way Clint Eastwood actually films whenever he's uh, going to the Arizona camp and you know he's in the jeep uh, and it's quite exciting some of the, the the camera work there is a very low angle shot at the back of the jeep looking at George Kennedy and himself at the front and then you know whenever we think about 
there's a helicopter coming down whenever Clint Eastwood's at the training camp. And it's hmm. weirdly, actually, you can hear the helicopter <laughs> quite clearly as a sound effect. I'm not quite sure why he chose that, because if he dialed that down, it would actually be like like a nice swooping shot. But he, he decided to make it us realise there was a camera in the helicopter. Um, and then, of course, one of the most striking visual aspects to the film is definitely the top of the world. I mean, that uh, totem pole in... Uh, Arizona. I mean, Mike, you'll know exactly that location, but it's uh, it's an incredible scene, and it was quite a big deal at the time, wasn't it? Definitely was, uh, and I think I believe Clint insisted on climbing it. But uh, yeah, there's some striking moments there. It's, it's very interesting that you say it is dated because it certainly is. Um, certainly, it's it's a little bit uncomfortable to you know just basically if the, if there's any, any female in the story you know, is wants to bed Clint and the other <laughs> in the periphery are always staring at him. No. <laughs> but, but the interesting thing is that if you go just six years later when Raiders of the Lost Ark comes along and you compare the two, it's, it, it's oddly similar in that Clint plays a university professor mm-hmm. who's an art historian and has an, 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 an collector. Women throw themselves at him and, and, um, and then he gets, you know, summoned by this guy to um, basically go do a hit, um, and uh, and he refuses, you know, say no, I'm not doing that anymore, you know. So there's there's some very sim- similarities, and in fact, I think that some of that uh, pinnacles area that we see for that top of the world scene is shot in the same place where some of the images from the opening of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade were taken. Oh, it's yeah, interesting true. to see it shows us how film has changed very, very, very quickly. And uh, arguably, a lot of uh, the uh, movies that did that were the ones that John scored that it became known for scoring. Yes. So, uh, I, I would say to go back to an earlier point you made about uh, um, where this sits in John's career, it may be a definitive 70s score for him. And I think with the exception of the Missouri breaks the following year, everything else doesn't really scream this is a 70s score. Certainly not Star Wars, Superman, Close Encounters, even 1941. I mean, he really was, Jaws certainly was a kind of center of the hourglass. Yes. All other every grain of sand had to pass but um even that is done in a more timeless way and really points the way forward to the music that would come the Iger sanction certainly has one foot in that one foot in the action that scores that are to come but also one foot behind in the disaster scores and some of the more quirky jazzy things like cinderella liberty and uh scores of that type. And you also mentioned the harpsichord, which he seemed to really favor in that era, didn't he? And I always thought from listening to it in Family Plot and The Paper Chase and I think the, and something, something else right around that time that also used it quite a bit. But it almost felt like it was, he always used it to invoke the feeling of old money. And we associated <laughs> the collection of art with old money or you know if you have old yes. money old, old art collections so that harpsichord always comes in 
for things either in a New England setting or um, in, in sort of that, you know, there's the um, sort of the, the old lady, the very beginning of family plot. Actually, he did the same for Sabrina. I mean, I, I'm thinking of the, the scenes involving Harrison oh, yeah. Ford at the beginning of the movie, That's where right. you see this kind of very old-fashioned kind of businessman uh, going out in the Rolls Royce, and you hear the the character accompanied by a very funny harpsichord tune. That's very interesting. I think you, you got something there, Mike. I think that absolutely John uh, sees the that environment of very uh, upper class <laughs> living as something that very uh, very good for for harpsichord <laughs> scoring. <laughs> a cognoscenti, you know, an instrument for the cognoscenti. So I mean, I don't think that you know you wouldn't call. Quinn's character and Iger Sanction sort of upper crust character, but he is a university professor. And yes. So there, there is that sort of sophistication underneath it. Um, so it's a very uh, interesting choice of the instrument. And he also used it for dispensable moments too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this fusion of uh, Baroque slash neo neoclassical it's in Jaws, right? It's he uses yeah, it for yeah. like the, the the montage sequence of everybody getting to the promenade. Yeah, yeah. so uh, yeah, it has that New England old money aspect about it. Uh, another thing which we you know we know Williams does so well is the big reveal, and there's a couple of real great big reveal cues in this. You know, which Williams has a great gift for. When you think of uh, you know, whenever we think that that cue is finished, whenever they've climbed the totem pole, suddenly there's this wonderful flourish and the full orchestra comes in, takes full control of the film. You know, this is one of these things which, which we know Williams is good at and very few composers in that era had a chance to real, really seize the moment like he did. And um, that, that's one of the things that really stood out when I saw the film again recently. Yeah, he, he had, there are certainly moments where the music could come to the fore. And that's always a, a beautiful thing for a composer to get.
I'm glad you both mentioned the album because whenever you think back now, I mean, one of the first introductions, certainly personally, was thanks to the MCA Filmworks compilation. Because if it wasn't for me hearing that, I think it was 1993, um, like a compilation of all of those MCA albums, you know, released in coordination with Trazzy Park and Schindler's List. Yes. I, you know, I, I would never have heard that. And, and I mean, it was thanks to that that I, I spent, you know, it was quite a, a costly import from America because the Coliseum, you know, the Verez for Europe at the time, didn't um, didn't stock it. So you had to really, you know, buy it from uh, America. And it was worth it. I mean, it absolutely was. But it, it's one of these things where, thankfully, if it wasn't for that compilation, uh, it, you know, wouldn't have been certainly uh, on my radar uh, like it is at the moment. Yeah, I remember having a somebody at like some science fiction convention in the 80s that there would be a booth selling soundtracks. They had like a cassette copy of it that I got. And then I think around the same time, I'm going to say like 83, I got the, the LP at Colony Records there in Times Square. Or technically, I guess there would be um, Cohen Square. Square, if you're a New Yorker, you know the difference. You know, so but I had totally forgotten about the movie and um, almost forgot that it had it existed. Uh, certainly was, of course, overshadowed by Jaws. And the interesting thing is that probably the reason why it got that soundtrack album re-recording was because of Jaws, because. It's interesting in that uh, there are four months span of time from when they scored the movie in January to doing the album recording in May, right before the movie opened. And a lot of that I think was based on the fact that the Jaws album was done because when they previewed Jaws in Dallas, there's so many of the preview cards mentioned how great the music was that they decided to make a soundtrack album. And while they were at it, MCA Records perhaps seeing a good thing coming, uh, said, well, let's get him to do Iger as well at the same time. And, and he did that album. So it would be unusual for there to be such a four month span of time between film score and album, if that was not the case. Yeah, and I think also it's interesting because maybe he didn't revise a lot the cues that he re-recorded for the soundtrack album, but maybe he, he saw an opportunity uh, for for the album session to uh, to give a more expressive uh, performance, so it's very interesting, and I think this score is very performance based in many ways. I mean, all John scores are uh, the performances are essential in the in the spirit of the score, but this one, I think it has some very unique playing from from some of the soloists. There is some incredible trumpet playing. I think it, it's Chuck Findlay playing most of the trumpet solos and there is also Mike Lang playing some of the piano solos uh, in, in this more jazz-like selections.
do you think, guys, that uh, John maybe took this occasion to to give the musicians to a, a more an opportunity to 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 give more maybe to the to the music that he wrote for for the movie? Hmm, I'm not sure. You mean with the regard to the rearranging it for album? Yes. I mean, he probably would have selected specifically the players that he wanted for those um, certain lines in order to capture exactly the, you know, make the performance as good as it could possibly be. But, uh, you know, as you say, it's not, doesn't have the same amount of rearranging that say the Jaws album had. And, you know, we, we all liked um, the um, Icy Ascent on, on the album. And uh, when you compare that, for example, to the film score version, compositionally, they're not very different. And, we in fact discovered, which we can talk about when we get there, the uh, fact that uh, there were extra cues recorded at the album sessions that didn't make it onto the album. Yes. Like Hemlock, Hemlock leads the climb. So compositionally, they're the same, but they obviously um, felt that uh, they needed, there, there was less to do. These cues lent themselves to uh, being presented on the album. They simply needed to record them in the right way for that presentation. The main title, of course, is very different. That I think they they went in knowing that it was there was going to be a single release as well, so it had to have a more pop approach. Producers at MCA Records would have insisted on that, and uh, um, to to market it as a single. You know, whenever we're talking about the instrumentalists, I think it'll be great. And of course, Maurizio, you've done some lovely interviews with these, you know, Luisa Tulio and Sheridan Stokes, about a, a minute and a half into the training with George Q that lovely modulation, you know, and then suddenly the flute, the flutes kick in. It's beautiful. Yes. I mean, it, it, you know, and that's one of those kind of Williams-esque moments, which uh, we, we all love to see and hear it in, in film. And there's certainly a, a highlight when we're talking about instrumentalists. <laughs> Thank you. 
it's interesting how you know certainly my ears uh, might be biased but I, I heard lots more French horn in the um, in, in these film tracks um, compared to what was on the original album you know there's some lovely solos here and there which of course as we know some of them were dropped from the film but um, certainly the, the original film tracks uh, it's lovely to hear and of course we have Tommy Tedesco on guitar and uh, we talked about him almost almost exactly a year ago doing the river so this is a lovely kind of remembrance which is uh, almost 10 years earlier yeah yeah absolutely and also Vince de Rosa I think it was all, all the big French horn solos that you hear and you are absolutely right I mean there are lots of exquisite French horn solos all throughout the schools I mean top of the world the opening absolutely beautiful and very recognizable but all throughout the school there are other moments where we can hear the the great Vince Rosa playing all those solos. Yes, and I think it's worth saying, Richard Kaufman said uh, in an interview a few years ago how much he really loved, well, and the whole orchestra loved playing this because, um, as we've alluded to already, I mean, this kind of music wasn't really, you know, being recorded back, you know, in, in those days. And the orchestra loved the kind of classical sound to it. And, uh, you know, they really kind of relished the session. So that was something um, which, you know, is, is worth highlighting because, uh, as we know, Richard Kaufman played on so many of William's scores before he, you know, he went on to other things. But it's, it's uh, you know, oh, oh, to be a fly on the wall, as we've said many times. <laughs> a little bit about what we were talking about before the you know the, the one of the uh, most peculiar aspects of this score you know is the fusion of this baroque slash neoclassical almost stravinsky and i can say uh tone with with more modern jazz sensibilities and stylings and even atonal passages i mean some of it might recall uh some of the stylings that were in vogue in those years like uh, I'm, I'm thinking of some jerry fielding scores that were kind of similar probably and it's interesting because jerry fielding was working with clint eastwood in the same years in same days and uh but at the same time the score doesn't have any standard heroic moments or maybe let's say clear cut good guy versus bad guy type of scoring I mean, save for the scenes where we, we mentioned before where Clint Eastwood is training in the Monument Valley, uh, where John Williams addresses the grandeur of the scenery. I mean, the music seems to score mostly the mystery and the drama. And, and I'm reminded, Mike, about what you were saying in the liner notes of the Black Sunday album release, where you spotted the moment in John Williams' career, and maybe in, in the grander scheme of things in film music back in that era, when he rescored the, the the final scene in Black Sunday, where he rescored the scene with a more overtly a heroic tone, uh, the, the the closure of the movie, 
like that was the moment where film music suddenly changed because a few months later John would score Star Wars and then everything really changed so do you think this score could be seen as the maybe the last uh, item of its of its genre that like it's a perfect example of 1970s type of scoring avoiding you know big major mode melodies and heroic uh, scoring or stuff like that well I, I would say so I mean as I said before I think it's kind of his quintessential 70s score in many ways including that it has it sort of quiets down at the end rather than getting louder and this is about it even Jaws does that it's got a big climax climax at the end of the film but the end credits are very very subdued um, and that was seems to be seem to be the direction at the time and and yes the ending of Black Sunday either didn't have score originally or it was um, stayed in its sort of action suspense mode rather than getting into heroics with a big fanfare and the rescore did that and yes everything it was sort of pointed the way to sort of the optimism and more uplifting quality of films that sort of pulled us out of the early 70s downbeat stories that we were getting so much of. But uh, we have to mention, I think, the, the um, 50 Miles of Desert, which was a favorite for people that did have the album, because you don't hear that music in the film at all, although it was used in the trailer. That's right. Uh, it was scored for the um, scene where he drives uh, Jack Cassidy out and, and is going to um, leave him there to die. Then there was a subsequent sequence that was actually score uh, called 50 Miles of Desert. Um, the first one that we know as 50 Miles of Desert is the car chase. So um, two cues one after another of some substance and very big action writing um, dropped from the film. And uh, because and, and but the reason why I mention that is because um, if this movie were done now, um, it's interesting because the, the film goes from there then off to the Eiger and then we have the climbing of the mountain with the team and one of them is the um, person that he needs to figure out who it is and to assassinate. But if they were doing that movie now, then, at the, then Jack Cassidy's character would 
miraculously reappear. <laughs> with, with, with his dog. With his and there dog. would be a uh, fight on the mountain for 20 minutes, um, you know, with a, with big, huge um, action cue to go with it. It's definitely um, yeah, a 70s movie in that this was over and done with. That, that uh, the, the opportunity to s- settle things with this old nemesis played by Jack Cassidy um, was literally the bonus when, uh, yes. when, he, when when Hemlock's given the job um, that, well, if you agree, I'll also tell you, you know, I'll give you an opportunity to get rid of your old nemesis there. What I love in that cue is that low-end staccato piano writing that it's so a trademark for, for John. Uh, if we think about it, we can hear traces of that uh, approach in schools like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, yeah. but also a few years later in Emperor of the Sun, but even Jeff K. Is something very, I think, very unique uh, to, to John Williams. Is some of the one of his trademarks in some kind of tension action uh, scoring uh, approaches that he has in some in some occasions. You're absolutely right. And in the case of Iger, that would have been Mike Lang, whom you mentioned, son of Jennings Lang, playing for it. And uh, yeah, so it's that going down as sort of like a pulse over which is this amazing you know, brass playing, which um, is a probably, it's, it's, I think, arranged for a larger sound on the album, but there's something so primal about the film version and, it's, and, and you know, in, in how raw and aggressive it is. It, yeah, no, totally, because it, it is quite an aggressive scene. I mean, you know, certainly, and, and that's, as well, it's, it, I, I recall the, one of the exciting brass sonatas which Williams has throughout this and which doesn't really, I think there's a, maybe a, a similarity to Heartbeeps, you know, you know, which is particularly, particularly good.
Mike, let's let's talk about the how did you find the elements and and the differences? I mean, between the recording made for the movie and the recording made for the album. I mean, you you already uh, touched a little bit upon that, but let's try to, to expand about uh, the state of the art. I mean, of the of this restoration work that you did that it's really magnificent because really the sound on this new release is astounding i think yeah it is well thanks well um this it was very very similar to earthquake in that we had a film score that was only kept by universal studios in the three track split mono configuration but that then had an album re-recording done for which Universal Music Group located the two-inch multi-track masters, which facilitated doing a updated mix. And the other similarity being also that we were able to actually add some things that were recorded for the album, but not presented on it. So uh, the two, I think, were very similar. And the uh, film score was, you know, it's, it's always, it's somehow disappointing when we only have a three track split mono, but uh, there's ways of working with it and get it, getting it to sound um, sort of acceptable. It was particularly tough because it was highly compartmentalized. One of the reasons why the brass is apparently so prominent versus the album recording in some cases is because only starting with three tracks, if one of them is the brass, there's really nothing else you can do you can lower it at the expense of the other two tracks, but the levels usually are the levels. The key is then um, figuring out how to blend them so that it has some sort of left right balance because it's, uh, it's very hard if you have a moment that's all just say a French horn, a harp and a violin. If you're doing a mono movie, it's no big deal. But if you're really trying to record that as a stereo recording, all those instruments belong on the left. So it's a matter of, you know, uh, what, how do I do it? Um, in this case, it would be, as I recall, a strings track or actually, uh, uh, yeah, a percussion track and then a brass and winds track. And so there was not that much latitude to work with. And, and when I first got it, I was afraid that I might not be able to do too much with it, but with some experimentation and um, figuring it out, I, I en ended up you know, finding a way to address it. It was harder than Earthquake was, harder than Family Plot was, but we got it there. Um, and then the big revelation, of course, was just how much more was scored than we knew about, because even just looking at the cue sheet, that will not account for music that's completely dropped from the film. And I was surprised when um, it tallied up to about 70 minutes. And that's not even counting source music. When you add the source music in, there's probably close to 90 minutes of material that you actually would be scored for the film. They didn't use all of that. But like a 90-minute score was extremely long for that time in John's career. Absolutely, yes. And a lot of the um, mountain climbing stuff was not used, including a big, big chunks of the of the climax. So, um, you know, it was quite revelatory. And what I love about it when when that happens is that the music itself serves as part of the narrative structure. 
So yes, that you 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 kind of get an ending. You kind of get a, a climactic, uh, suspenseful ending cue now before you go into that beautiful take on the theme over the end credits. So it makes for a complete narrative experience, but as music. And um, I was just delightfully surprised by how long it was because at the outset, I kind of thought, oh, well, it'll be a 35 minute album and then we'll have the 35 minute film score and, and we'll be done. I didn't realize how long it was going to be. Uh, and then there was the case of all the source music. So there were seven pieces, I believe, and we ended up, I think, with three of them, which is pretty good because <laughs> usually Don doesn't like them to go out. On Earthquake, I stuck with the ones that had a counterpart on the original album. With these, um, you know, a lot of them were um, had a character that was acceptable to put out in the place where we put them, which was following the album. Did you ever figure out why John doesn't particularly like to have source music out there on a recording. Yeah, he sees them as serving a utilitarian need, period. And if, and he was asked to do a lot of that in the 70s. So if it goes in the direction of 70s, kind of um, sort of cheesy 70s, sort of pseudo rock or pseudo disco kind of vibe, that's just intended to be 10 seconds on a car radio going by, but he'll have the musicians diddle on for 90 seconds of it. You know, um, he, it doesn't see, he doesn't see that as anything more than serving utilitarian purpose. And he does bash out some melody. Um, but if it's more classical in its, in, in its basis, he's not necessarily opposed to it. So, I mean, it's interesting, the choice that was made for all the beach radio music in Jaws was uh, um, different than the radio music from Jaws 2, all of which he rejected as going on there. But, mm. uh, but for some reason with this one, all I could hope for was uh, submitting all seven. And I think maybe by doing that, by uh, submitting seven, I got three back and, and, and I'll take it. I wonder how he feels maybe when he has to revisit this kind of stuff that he did so many years ago. I mean, because I, I, I recently listened to another interview that you did with a nice fellows at the IndieCast podcast that you, you did a beautiful conversation about Indiana Jones, but mainly also about your, your work though on the various John Williams restorations. And, and you mentioned a, a very nice thing about... Uh, asking him uh, to to pull out one of his manuscript scores <laughs> uh, to 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 identify a, a, a cue title, and I wonder if 
if if it maybe it was the Iger sanction that you were you were mentioning. Yes, it, it was this one because we had all these unused cues, and since and that would therefore mean they're not on the studio cue sheet. So, um, and this music is not anywhere else. Joanne Kane doesn't have it. There's no manuscripts elsewhere that we could find. Um, the boxes didn't say anything. Um, I had some. I could put some clues together from the boxes and for the album sessions and the and the ma orchestra manager reports for the for the album sessions, which tell you what everybody's come to record. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I needed confirmation. So yeah, it was this. So he pulled pulled it down. I mean, he must, you know, take some pleasure in knowing that something's serving a purpose beyond you know, holding up the walls of the bookshelf. So, uh, I mean, recently he did pull down Cinderella Liberty for the violin arrangement that he did. So, yeah. Um, oh, yes. It's, uh, yeah. So, it's, it's nice to know that they still have a purpose. And in this case, uh, it's all that existed. We had to tell them that, you know, this score is not anywhere else. So, his copy, which is a massive book, it includes all the album arrangements, is where we got the, uh, you know, we needed the titles and he was happy to pull them down. But the source, music did not have titles for the ones that did not get used. The ones that were used do have titles, but um, the unused source music did not have titles. I, I, I personally love so much the, the take uh, with a Swiss version of the main theme that is used as a, you, you mentioned it before in the conversation, that is used that the source piece heard in the hotel where the Iger expedition meets and uh, it's, it's such a wonderful way to to uh, to unite i mean uh, uh source music with actual score i think that's a very um, it's a very mancini kind of thing to do isn't it yes mm, absolutely yeah. that's true yeah it's very much blending in almost just completely as if we weren't it's almost subliminal but it's, it's so clever so clever right but he did it also as far back as say how to steal a million where some of the theme would be just interpolated as source music in the various places where they were at the, at the Ritz, the Maxims or wherever, right? So it's interesting that, uh, you know, the peep, the characters in the, in the story are actually encountering the, the theme music for the movie that they're, that they're unaware that they're in. It's strange. I mean, it's kind of like where how uh, Hagrid in the first Harry Potter is actually playing the, uh, the Harry Potter theme on his recorder. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Such a lovely <laughs> touch. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Totally. And I don't know. Here's one that I don't think people really know. It's very, very subtle. But in Home Alone, there is a moment where the two thieves are in their plumbing van and Kevin is on his way home um, and they're following him and they stop and they kind of look around nonchalantly to think that, oh, we're not really looking at you. And the Joe Pesci character, Harry, um, kind of does this sort of nonchalant whistle. Mm -hmm. He's actually whistling the villain's theme from Home Alone, and it's John doing the whistling. Really? <laughs> oh, wow. You heard it here first. 
<laughs> I think it's there, there's a scene in The Witches of Eastwick where Jack Nicholson enters the the ice cream shop and you hear it whistling oh, yes. a, a, a bit of the of the Devil's Dance theme. That's right, it does. But um, really, I, I didn't know that John actually whistled some of the yeah, <laughs> source music. Does, yes, he did the whistling for um, and uh, I, I heard the booth recording, and at the end of it, he says, um, I think that's about as good as I can get. You might have to hire a whistler. <laughs> <laughs> he should have phoned Ennio Morricone's whistlers. <laughs> yeah, 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 we hear Steven Spielberg whistling quite a lot on his score. He's a, much, he's a very good whistler. Really? <laughs> yeah, and he's yeah doing, that's right. Uh, he's quite a bit in Jaws. He's doing the Shall We Gather at the River of the Two Fishermen both parts separately and then put together to make the harmony. And then there's a moment later where Quint whistles uh, at the end of the first sea chase cue. That's Steven Spielberg whistling. And he's also doing- Wow. The, he's also doing the coming around the mountain and close encounters. Oh, yes. So Robert's blood, that, that's Steven. And most famously, I think there's a, it's actually on the soundtrack album for The Color Purple, there's a cue that has the whistling overlay that's part of the Harpo characters seen whistling, but that's, you're hearing Steven Spielberg whistling. Wow, I didn't know that. Because the only time I heard Steven Spielberg whistling is that in that interview on the Indiana Jones DVDs where he whistles. The, the two main themes of the Raiders. That's right. When he explains that he that John wrote two different Raiders themes, and, and he, asked, he loves the bridge. He asked him, and he asked him to use them both. Use both, right? And uh, and always, I think there's quite because the Dreyfus character whistles. We get the Gary Owen march. Um, there's a lot of Spielberg whistling in that. So I mean, that we've actually heard quite a lot of him whistling. He's a very good whistler. Another person who is a superb whistler. Uh, and God bless her, she can't sing anymore, is Julie Andrews. But if you go back, well, all the way back to Mary Poppins in the scene where she is singing with little Robin during the uh, spoonful of sugar and yes. in harmony with the whistling Robin, that's Julie doing the whistling. Wow. Fantastic. <laughs>
know the the sound quality aspect it's uh it's, it's probably important to to know isn't it and i can't recall if we've mentioned it already but you know the with the two different recording venues is kind of key isn't it i mean whenever we think about the actual sound quality i mean you know i suppose exhibit a of this is the you know the superstructure chase in return of the jedi we know it doesn't sound as expansive as a lot of the rest of the score because it was a different venue so this could be another reason why you know there's a difference in sound when you think of the two different recording venues so the album was burbank and then the actual film was universal stage 10 i believe mike yeah, yeah. which has its own sound and it's perfectly suitable especially to projects of that era and more especially on movies where, where you knew it was only going to be mono but it's a very small sound there's just it's, it was rather like cts in the uh, the old cts in london the Bayswater. um well i think also wembley where it didn't matter if you added musicians it just it could only it didn't make it sound larger so the uh, universal stage really would i think maybe 60 is about as high as you can go um and then if you added more it wouldn't change the sound at all whereas burbank studios now warner brothers um holds a full symphony quite comfortably and has a wonderful sound and so i don't actually recall where earthquake was done but that maybe both were done at universal because that was not as big an ensemble um Iger sanction was warner's and so was uh Jaws, although the film of Jaws was at Fox. Yes. Film stations were at Fox. I think you're right. Yes, you are. And it was, uh, and it was, um, Jaws was Ted Keep and John Neal. kind of a, an appropriate synergy, isn't it? That the, the um, Warner Studios are now called the Eastwood Scoring Stage. Is that, that would be the same venue, is that right? <laughs> yes, and uh, same exact scoring stage. And uh, of course, Clint has a long, long, long history with um, Warners. And I don't think since Iger, I don't think he's done a movie for anybody else. Am I right about that? Yeah, I think you are. That's his last Universal film, wasn't it? Yeah, I think, um, yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure it, it's it's interesting that he never collaborated again with John Williams. I think yeah, we were cheated um, of uh, a John Williams score to the Bridges of Madison County, which at one point Spielberg was going to direct. Oh yes, right, and True. then pulled out of it and had Clint direct it. But it was done for Amblin, if I'm if I'm right. It was. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Right. But that yeah, definitely um, would have been an interesting. Uh, to, to see where that would have gone 
um, at something like a perfect world and say comparing that to like the Sugarland Express or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose that maybe the slight tenuous link would be the beautiful, what I would highlight as Lenny Niehaus's best work is Mystic River, which was recorded at Boston Symphony Hall with Boston yes. Symphony Orchestra. So there's a slight link, I suppose, um, you know, whether or not, you know, Williams was involved in that at all, you know, from obviously, you know, the outside in. But um, that's uh, that's a tremendous kind of a hymn-like score. Do you both recall that? Beautifully recorded. Yes. I, I, I think that Clint even wrote the main theme. Oh, yes. I think you're right. Right. He's very, very musical, and um, which is wonderful for an actor and director. I mean, he's just, he's just uh, you know, unstoppable. But uh, I think he automatically goes in with his own ideas and knows exactly what he wants. And similar to the situation with Erwin Allen, John Williams reached a point where he had total control over what projects he picked and, and, and the direction he wanted to go and with them. And, uh, you know, that certainly, um, and, and being, um, you know, so many things going on in the eighties with the Boston pops and with the, uh, you know, constant work for Steven Spielberg, it, you know, Clint certainly went in a different direction, but, uh, you know, he's really, marvelously musical which i'm sure is very refreshing for a composer to work with somebody like that so i would love to have had um at least one more collaboration with the two of them just to see um what it would be like yeah yeah absolutely and i also think that just because uh clint was very attached to composers like uh, in the early part of his career like uh, jerry fielding that i mentioned before but also lala schifrin and both composers i think were coming from a similar background uh, like John. I mean, they, they were both great jazz men and I think that they were both very uh, knowledgeable about the, the symphonic classical literature and they also explored, they, they had maybe similar career paths. I mean, they, they both worked in the television field a lot and they started in the, the 60s and then in the, went big in the 70s. So I think John would have completed a great trio uh, together also with Lenny Nyhouse that we mentioned mm-hmm. before uh, of col- music, great musical collaborators of Clint Eastwood. We have uh, one other tiny little um, crossing of paths and I'll, I'll bring it up in the form of a trivia question that in between Close Encounters of the Third Kind and AI there's only one project on which Steven Spielberg got screenplay credit, screenwriting credit. Either of you know what it is? Um, well, it was the Goonies a story by or screenplay? Because uh, was I'm uh, actually writing of the script. Actually writing of the script. Mm-hmm. Uh, hmm. It's okay. You want the answer? Yeah. It's Clint's episode of Amazing Stories. Oh right. right. Yes. Vanessa in the Garden. Right. Oh yes. <laughs> so that's a Steven Spielberg screenplay for something that Clint directed. And, and that's a lovely episode, actually. One, one of the, one of the loveliest, I think, of the series. And Clint and Steven Spielberg also, uh, I think the the uh, the couple, you know, uh, flags of our fathers and letters from Iwo Jima. Mm-hmm. They were both produced by Amblin, or at least have Steven Spielberg as one of the producers. I that's think. true. Yes, that's they one. did. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I think the movie I would love to have seen John score would be Sully. Mm. Oh, yeah. But uh, 
yeah, I mean, these are all just uh, uh, speculative um, dreaming about an alternate universe. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's always lovely to do. I've said this before, but I always kind of, I do kind of miss in the, we have to say the previous century, um, that uh, aspect of John's career where a surprising project would suddenly come out of nowhere, like Presumed Innocent or Sleepers. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Rosewood. Yes. Right. Yeah. So I, mean, I I missed that. Yeah. I suppose the last time was brought the book thief, maybe wasn't it? The book, the book thief was yeah. the standout. Yeah. But other than that, since the Patriot, really, we've only either gotten Spielberg or Star Wars or Harry Potter. Right. So. Yeah. That is a nice way to tie in with uh, uh, with what we can expect actually from John, because uh, we we are actually in this very strange moment in history where uh, we it, it seems that the world is starting to get back to a, some kind of normalcy, and we see also you know potential future projects that we all hope to see realized. Uh, so that's. And it, that even includes uh, new film scores by John Williams. Indiana Jones 5 is already filming. Uh, it's up, you know, up and running uh, production uh, in here in Europe or maybe, no, Scotland. Yes, so <laughs> I don't know if Scotland is still Europe or not. So sorry. <laughs> it's not part of the EU, unfortunately. <laughs> and uh, it's already been announced that John will write the score for Indiana Jones 5. So, and this is happening in the year of Raiders of the Lost Ark 40th anniversary, which is even more impressive if we think about it, that uh, a composer that is entering his 90th year of living well, is composing the fifth score of a series that is 40 years old <laughs> so that averages out to getting one movie made every eight years it's like kubrick <laughs> yeah so uh but uh no I mean, I mean a little slight hitch in it because of uh, harrison's unfortunate injury yeah um, which is you know happened also on the force awakens so i just uh, yes. well uh it's we take it as a good sign <laughs> yeah but i think um it's on track schedule wise for that's going to happen after returning from the Carnegie Hall concert. So, which is just astounding that you think this 90 year old is doing all this. I mean, going to Berlin and then to New York and then doing another big movie and um, the Steven Spielberg movie as well, which I guess has not been announced, but I don't think anybody's um, assuming that he won't score it. I think he will, although I expect it to be a, a rather subdued kind of score. 
mm-hmm. but uh, you know, it's all of that coming up in, within the next year. So it's it's pretty remarkable. But uh, health is still good, and you know, and, and, and all of the logistics are appropriately handled with great great care. So um, you know, there's no uh, reason to not uh, relish the idea that all this is happening. I'm very I'm very uh, eager to see what what he will do. I mean, and of course, it, it seems kind of um, a, cu- a curiosity that the, this last part of his career this, uh, is punctuated with this new revisitations of older material that he did in, back in 30, 40, 50 years ago even. Uh, but at the same time, it's interesting to see that uh, he has, he still keeps things interesting for himself. I mean, uh, if we see that he's still writing even concert works, recently a new work for piano has been premiered by Gloria Chang in, here in Europe, in Barcelona. And then there is the new violin concerto that he has written for Anne-Sophie Mutter. But at the same time, he's still going on writing Star Wars and Indiana Jones <laughs> and whatever else. Yeah, it's, and it's, I mean, but if you think about it, the, but the Boston pops, he he never stopped revisiting because he there's so many things that you thought were just gone and part of the past that because with the box and pops um you know came back to life starting at the very first concert where he did the reavers arrangement got burgess meredith back to uh, and, and did the cowboys overture those scores probably never would have been heard from again so um True. you know and, and then it's like the et theme park ride and then it's uh you know, Galaxy's Edge. So that there's always a reason to actually go back and revisit something and um, adapting things for new concert arrangements is a wonderful idea. That's why I, I loved the fact that he brought Cinderella Liberty out again to do something with it. Because who would ever know about that score or about that movie even, you know? Um, and uh, look at the life that um, the some of these scores and films have because of the concert arrangements where they really sort of um, did not become as popular as everybody had hoped they would be. Things like Hook and Far and Away and The Witches of Eastwick, you know, have tremendous life in the in concert repertoire because of John. So, I mean, he's never really stopped going back and revisiting things, but I don't think anybody really saw this trend coming that we had now have of actors playing the same characters uh, forever, basically. Um, literally dying with your boots on in the case of uh, Indiana Jones and Han Solo. Um, but uh, it's nice that he's around to put the bow on it. And I actually feel now um, that there's a, there's a quality about making this movie without the baggage and overwhelming expectations that would come with George and Steven being together doing it because there's maybe less room for disappointment, there's you know, less baggage. Now we can sort of go in with a fresh idea, fresh vision, um, you know, um, not that sort of expectation of, oh, you have to top yourself. But um, if they had, I said it in that indie cast thing, if they have a good story, then, you know, just go with it and, uh, and trust the audience to love the characters and don't necessarily have people behaving in a way that we don't believe. And, um, you know, hopefully um, Mangold is 
following that. Um, the vibe seems to suggest that they are and that they've come up with something at least uh, interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we've seen, you know, set photos and things like that to kind of give us some indication of what what's involved with it. Uh, but, but I think, you know, in the same way that John came back to do the Star Wars um, new cools, as I call them, um, <laughs> that was a fresh, you know, a fresh voice could be brought to it that it's not a George Lucas movie. There was an opportunity to just use the same, you know, start the same foundation, but you're, you know, you now have a different architect designing the house. But the foundation is laid and you have that as the groundwork on which you can build, but you have some freedom to um, explore a little bit. And so and it's also interesting artistically to see what one artist does uh, at the age of um, 50, as opposed to the age of 90 on the same subject matter. So um, it's, uh, it's a, to all of us who are around and who have been around to see this whole thing through, we're very, very blessed to be, actually, be able to actually say that I was there and saw it happen. Yeah, so. yeah, I, I totally agree. I think uh, sometimes I see a, a sort of cynicism toward these things and, and people say it cannot be as good as it was or, you know, the, the usual argument that are brought up by by people when when we, we when they talk about these kind of uh, topics, but it, it, for me at least it's it's really what you just said. I mean, it's the realization that we are so blessed to have a man still around at age almost ninety, uh, still having fun with the music that he writes and still in love with the with the process of writing new music for new movies and new projects, uh, and a really give the best out for for himself. I mean, it's just nobody. I mean, he, he could be retired and live a happy, happy life at this point of his career and, and everybody would be happy. But no, I mean, he, he still wants to to have fun and, and, you know, take the fruits that this phase of his life can, can give him. It's just the process of pencil, paper, piano, being around other musicians, being in a scoring stage, that's, it's the fuel in the tank, you know? So if you don't have that, then it, you're like a car running out of gas. And, you know, yeah, you could have a nice, comfortable life, you know, go seeing the world and cruising around, but it's not the fuel in his tank, you know? So he's got to work and, and manage it, you know, with regard for, the laws of physics that you are of a certain age and there's certain things you can and can't do anymore. Um, but, uh, but find a way to make it work. And he's certainly in a position to have done that. And that's the reason why he is doing that. And um, I think he once said in an interview that he, he, I can't retire from music. It's like retiring from air. Mm -hmm. you, know? um, you, you wonder, I mean, um, yeah. I mean, he was sort of, sort of a non sequitur story entirely, but I'll use it anyway, just as an illustration that uh, the American television series, the most popular one of all time, I Love Lucy, um, was, came on the air in 1951 and Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball wanted and went to the CBS network with some demands about how the show would be done. The network wanted it done in New York live as most television was done. And then the West Coast of the United States would get a kinescope of that broadcast 
And Desi Arnaz wanted everybody to have the same quality. He wanted to do it in California and do it on film, 35 millimeter, cut it together as a movie. And everybody would have the same superb quality. And when CBS told them that the budget would be higher, it would cost more. They said, well, we'll cover the excess budget, but in exchange, I want to own the negative. And CBS said, okay, that's fine. Who would ever do that for anything? <laughs> and they were they owned it and um now if they had just kept ownership of that show they would have more money than any two people could have wanted and perhaps even the marriage would have gone farther than it did but instead in 1960 he sold the rights back to cbs and then with the influx of money purchased the old archaeo studios and turned it into desilu now suddenly you have to have 20, 25 shows on the air and you have to be executives and you actually have to have a function and have, um, you know, business responsibility. Um, had they not done that, you know, we would not have had Star Trek, Mission Impossible, The Untouchables, Andy Griffith, all of that. So you, won, you, you wonder, you know, um, could you have gone for the easy retirement or do you need to keep working? And it only sure. seems to answer that you, you, they, they have to keep working. Yes. And, uh, there is a sacrifice, but there's a sacrifice to everything. Um, you know, I was in, in the conversation I did the other day with uh, the Iconicon convention with Bruce Broughton and Matt Verboys from La La Land. We talked about the technology and how music has changed and everything. And um, I made the point, and as did Bruce, that. Uh, you know, things have gotten so much easier to do and we have so much more opportunity because of technology, but it always comes at a sacrifice. So if you're going to go get the advantage in one side, there's always going to be a disadvantage on the other. There's always a reaction for every action. And, uh, um, but you just choose to move forward. So this is a long-winded way of saying it, but I, I see this as, um, you know, John needs to work no matter how appealing a quiet retirement might be and how many other opportunities he might get out of life. I think he's found a balance and has decided, well, he wants to conduct Vienna, he wants to conduct Berlin, he wants to go back to Carnegie Hall again, and he can do these things. Um, and I'm sure there's still plenty of opportunities to enjoy life, but I don't see him leaving the piano or putting down the pencil or yes. calling it quits for going onto a scoring stage. Um, so for, for as long as he's actually able to do that, I think he will continue to see him doing that. Whenever you saw you say about technology, I think one great highlight is Deutsche Grammophone uh, utilizing their relationship and contract with him again, with the recent Deutsche Grammophone TV broadcast. And then, Invariably, because Berlin is the home of Deutsche Grammophon, I would like to think there'll be some kind of event or recording of the Berlin concert, which would just be wonderful. Right, and how many versions of it we might get. <laughs> <laughs> and the Vienna Phil commissioned him to do a fanfare, didn't they? Is that still happening? I think so. They have an anniversary coming up. Is it 150? Or... That was announced, wasn't it, last year, that he was writing some kind of fanfare? Yeah, I think he did do that. And I think he's also writing some anniversary fanfare for the Hollywood Bowl, I guess. 
as well. Yeah, because that centennial is, uh, it's, it's, I guess it's debatable, but I think the, it's the first actual concerts were 1922, even though the um, purchase of the property, I think, was by the Hollywood Arts Alliance, I think it was, um, mm -hmm. 1919, I think. And they started things there, but it, but it became uh, sort of established in what it ultimately led to being that we all know in 1922. His return at the Hollywood Bowl this coming August, I think it's one of those events that is being eagerly awaited by, especially from the people living in the Los Angeles area like you, Mike. So are you going to be there? Next I'm August. going to be there, yes, in rehearsal and then to the concerts. And, uh, you know, since we skipped last year entirely, it's the first time I saw him every year there since 1991 when I first came to L.A. Uh, or I mean, there might have been some years where he didn't conduct, now that I'm thinking about it. it might, he might have skipped a few years, but I've been there every summer since then and always to his. Um, so uh, that's been like the end of summer tradition for me. Um the real sort of uh, line of demarcation that we've reached at the end of the summer. Um, uh, earlier on, I think he appeared earlier in the year, but uh, now he sort of has this routine and rhythm going of going to Tanglewood in July, where he just, I think he just got there. Um, and then uh, back here mid-August for the bowl, till, uh, for Labor Day weekend. But now, as we know, he's off again in October. so. Uh, and well, actually, there's something else end of September still, or something. There's something else in October now. Um, he's back to Boston. He's back to Boston. Yes, yes. He he's doing the the opening night of the Boston Symphony season and the reopening yes. of Symphony Hall. Yeah. So that and that, that was deliberately planned because it's obvious. I think a lot of people were concerned about the trip to um, Germany, but he's only going from the East Coast rather than from California, which that. That's a significant time off the journey. Um, but yeah, so Boston, back to Boston first and then to Germany. So uh, so it's really an exciting time. I mean, after this very tough year, 2020, that we all lived through and, and even part of 2021 as well. I mean, uh, I think that it's safe to assume that the, the last part of this 2021 year will be probably better for live events and for concerts and for outdoor activity and and for a full resume of what we really love yeah to a degree we are in a place where we kind of need to try this yes. i know we're not out of the woods yet we're seeing the news about things still going on particularly among the unvaccinated but uh you know so we but we have to kind of see so i the I will go to Disney Hall for Home Alone this December and because um, I haven't yet gotten yet to see that and I hear it's really, really um, a, a riotous thing to see it with the audience and the orchestra. And then I, and I only go to the John Williams concert at the Bowl. Normally I'd go two, three times, but, uh, but this is only six, seven weeks away now, so it's coming up pretty fast. So we'll just sort of see how it goes. I mean, our numbers here are a little bit concerning, but... Uh, Everybody I know has gotten the jab, so that that's, that's the answer to stopping this thing. Uh, we'll just, I guess, we'll just see how it goes. But uh, I will be, you know, sneaking out as time allows, and, and there's very little because I'm just so busy with a lot of things. But 
but yeah, so, but I'm looking forward to that Labor Day weekend at the bowl for sure. Well, whenever we hear that you're busy, Mike, it's always a good thing to hear, definitely, because we know that the treats are on the horizon. Um, no, I'm not, I'm not looking forward to uh, next year. I mean, the big 90th year is something really to look forward to and, and obviously celebrate uh, all together, you know. I want to thank you, Mike, for, for staying with us once again. Anytime you want to return, we are here to wait for you. Thank you, Mauricio. And uh, yes, I think that this release in particular and the last chat we did was about always and images. And I think collectively, what I hope is that we can continue to demonstrate and bring some attention to the variety of types of scores that John has done and um, and really just sort of celebrate the genius that he can really do anything. And I think the Iger sanction is as good an example of that of, as anything. And uh, and it's and, and yes, and fortunately, I there, there will be uh, more things to talk about in the future. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. That's very good to know. Brilliant. Tim, thank you, thank you very much. Thank you. It's likewise. And thank you as well, Mike. And yeah, definitely looking forward to speaking more very soon. Yes. And once again, thank you guys for going into the wee hours uh, on my behalf. <laughs> <laughs> Pleasure. Stay well, you guys.